Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Truman Capote, Richard Hickok, Perry Smith, and In Cold Blood. Let's return to our story about Truman Capote and in cold blood. The defense case only took 90 minutes to present, unintentionally brief, because both the court and the prosecution were intent on limiting any testimony concerning either the character of the defendants or their sanity. Dick Hickok's father might have done more harm than good the defense wanting to establish that Hickok's serious car accident had transformed him negatively into a completely different human being. But on the stand, Dick's father had to admit that Dick had already gotten into trouble prior to that in 1949, breaking into a drugstore and stealing an expensive watch. To the Protestant chaplain from Kansas State Penitentiary, who wished to provide information about Perry Smith and an exceptional portrait of Jesus Christ that Smith painted the prosecutors would not even let the chaplain take a photo out of its envelope before objecting. Other acquaintances met similar objections, while the psychiatrist asked about the sanity of the two defendants was restricted by Kansas law to merely answer whether the defendants knew right from wrong. He answered yes for both defendants. Then it was on to the closing statements, Dwayne West not only maintaining that there was no question of the defendant's guilt, but that their punishment should also definitely involve capital punishment. Both defense attorneys, Fleming and Smith, attempted to use Christian doctrine to not only ask the jury to be merciful and forgiving, but also to decry the pointlessness and barbarity of the death penalty. Unfortunately, this tactic backfired. Logan Green, a 70-year-old criminal attorney known for dramatics in the courtroom was retained to assist the county prosecutor specifically with Green's own closing argument, and he did not disappoint. With regard to mercy, he noted sardonically that it was lucky for the defense team that they were not present at the Clutter House on the night in question, pleading for mercy for the Clutter family. That would have merely added to the body count. And, anticipating that the defense would employ biblical scripture to argue for a life sentence instead of death, Green cited numerous quotes on the subject from an open Bible, but very effectively quoted Genesis from memory, quote, Whoso sheddeth a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, unquote. But he did not stop there. He underlined that the four killings netted the assailants a mere $40, $10 for the life of each clutter, 
and emphasized the sheer terror of the family as they were brutally murdered one by one. He closed by appealing to the jury to not flinch from what they knew to be a just and appropriate verdict. It did not take long for the all-male jury to render that verdict, 40 minutes to be exact. The two defendants were convicted on all eight counts, four each of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Logan Green had implored the jury to not behave like some, quote, chicken-hearted jury, unquote, who had shrunk from punishing a criminal, only to have said criminal commit some even more terrible crime. After listening to the verdicts and upon leaving the courtroom, Hickok was said to have remarked to Smith, quote, no chicken-hearted jurors they, unquote. Both men laughing heartily, an image recorded by a photographer and ultimately splashed across the state of Kansas's various front pages the following day. It was not long before Hickok and Smith were returned to a location they both knew well, the Kansas State Penitentiary, except this time they were headed to the separate two-story building that housed both the Special Disciplinary Unit for Incorrigibles and the state's death row for condemned inmates. The disciplinary unit was on the structure's first floor. The second floor was only accessible via an iron spiral staircase that led to 12 identical 7-by-10-foot cells, sparsely furnished with a narrow barred and screen window that overlooked an interior prison lot, bordered by the prison warehouse that also contained the simple wooden gallows that was used to hang the condemned. Nicknamed The Corner, Smith and Hickok already had a date scheduled for their execution, May 13, 1960, only a few months away. While the two killers awaited their fate, Truman Capote assembled what he subsequently described as 4,000 pages of notes and began writing in earnest. He already had a title in cold blood, but he quickly decided that New York was too much of a distraction, so he and his partner, Jack Dunphy, headed for a small village on Spain's Costa Brava. He also seemed intent on idealizing the role of Alvin Dewey in return for additional positive responses to requests that were beyond the bounds of typical law enforcement practices. Subsequent to the publication of the book, Dewey stated that Capote's depiction of investigators and other relevant characters depended on whether or not Capote liked them. As far as his portrayal, Dewey added, quote, I was the luckiest, unquote. But a recitation of the remarkable and probably unethical activity that Dewey completed on behalf of Capote is startling. Both Dewey and his wife were dazzled and flattered by the attention lavished on them by Capote and Harper Lee replete with Capote's insider tales of Hollywood and celebrity. As early as May 3, 1960, Capote implored Dewey specifically over receiving four years' worth of entries from Nancy Clutter's diaries, including the last notation written only hours before her death. Dewey sent those within two weeks of this request. Capote responded by setting up a social engagement with David O. Selznick and Jennifer Jones, when the Deweys visited a relative in Los Angeles, the type of interaction that Marie Dewey craved. In his letter of introduction, Capote described Alvin Dewey to the Selznicks as the, quote, hero of his latest effort. Such flattery was additionally productive. In addition to exclusive interviews granted with Smith and Hickok, Dewey provided Capote access temporarily to the case files, ultimately giving an entire set of the official reports compiled on the case to the author. 
When individuals like Bobby Rupp, Dwayne West, and Logan Green were reluctant to speak with Capote, Dewey personally interceded, getting them all to cooperate. Dewey even went so far as to aid Capote in obtaining a Kansas State driver's license, despite the writer's lack of residency in the state. Friendship and access to celebrity was not the only tangible result of Dewey's cooperation. In 1966, the lawman and his wife were invited to Capote's celebrity-masked black-and-white ball, the New York social event of the decade and one of the most discussed and exclusive media events in the city's history. Much more inappropriate was a recent revelation, long after the deaths of both Dewey and his wife, that Capote interceded with Columbia Pictures to obtain a $10,000 contract for Marie Dewey during the 1967 filming of In Cold Blood, an expense that has been acknowledged by the studio. Money-changing hands was a tactic that Capote employed in another instance in which a different kind of access became necessary. The warden in charge of Kansas State Penitentiary, Sherman Krauss, was intent on keeping all media figures, especially Capote, from accessing or even corresponding with any of the inhabitants of the state's death row. Prison regulations restricting such access to family members and attorneys only. But Capote would not take no for an answer. He retained the Garden City law firm Fleming, Haig, Saffles, and Hope to assist him in persuading the state to change its policy. Dale Saffles was a Democratic member of the Kansas House of Representatives and even the minority leader of the political body, while Clifford Hope Sr. was a former 15-term Republican U.S. congressman, two individuals with a lot of political clout. Clifford Hope Jr. also was an employee of the firm. How exactly it was negotiated is not specifically known, but eventually Capote was granted personal visitation rights and, most importantly, the ability to correspond with both criminals, access he later claimed involved bribing a prominent Kansas political figure. During their five-year stint on death row, Capote only visited personally no more than a few times, but he corresponded with both men on a weekly basis, gleaning essential information about their lives leading up to their execution. And this existence was grim, the physical conditions isolated. The only other occupant of the row, Lowell Lee Andrews, a 20-year-old college sophomore convicted of the multiple murder of his family, the crime occurring in 1958. In 1961, there were two additional prisoners added to the group, George York and James Latham, two teenaged army privates convicted of the multi-state spree killing of seven people. Kansas was given the opportunity to try the two criminals, which resulted in a death sentence for the murder and robbery of one of the victims. The prisoners were not allowed radios, exercise, work details, or even let out of their cells, save for the once-a-week showers they enjoyed. Other than the visits of Hickok's mother, the only access to the external world was through Capote, who also sent money, magazines, books, and various other items which helped to keep this relationship flourishing. But this interaction was also fundamentally problematic for Capote. He understood that he would not be able to finish his book until the case was concluded, most likely with the execution of the condemned. By 1963, most of the book was complete, and the author started to grow impatient. Portions of the incomplete manuscript were shared with friends or even publicly read by Capote, who was very forthcoming about his current project. The feedback he received was effusive, 
and he also realized that the only barrier to literary acclaim and a great deal of wealth was the continued legal process of his subjects' appeals. Several letters from this time period indicate not sympathy for the condemned, but his own personal self-absorbed frustration over the elongated judicial machinations. Typical of Capote, behind the scenes, it was all about him. As early as September 4, 1961, in a letter to the Deweys, the author made that clear. Quote, I shall write Cliff, Clifford R. Hope Jr., a letter about arranging for me to attend, to use Marie's excellent phrase, the final scene. I do hope Alvin is right, and we will reach that date sooner rather than later, unquote. When another execution date was set for October 25, 1962, he wrote again to the Deweys, quote, So, October 25th, at last we are getting somewhere, but I wonder what will now transpire. Will H and S live to a ripe and happy old age, or will they swing and make a lot of folks happy indeed? Unquote. His duplicity in dealing personally with his subjects was underlined in two letters in quick succession on January 19, 1965, and the 24th. To Sandy Campbell, a New Yorker staffer assigned to apprise him of any Supreme Court activity relative to Hickok and Smith's appeals, quote, just got the cable with news that the appeal would not be heard by the Supreme Court. Now let's keep everything crossed, knees, eyes, hands, figures, unquote. But to Perry Smith, a few days later, quote, I've only just heard of the court's denial. I'm very sorry about it, unquote. The letter signed, affectionately, Truman. Capote also misled the two defendants as to how they would be depicted and put off any attempts on their part to read his manuscript, claiming that the book was only an incomplete fragment right up until the day they were executed. By then, Capote had essentially finished the book. Only the specific details of the execution were necessary. Smith especially was angered when he heard the title, perhaps understanding that it referred to the senselessness and brutality of their behavior. Nevertheless, when the execution date finally arrived, despite misgivings and even previous statements that he would not attend, Capote made the trek to Kansas State Penitentiary. Officially, he was not allowed to attend, but both Hickok and Smith requested his presence as a witness, which was their legal right. Even this appearance was fraught with drama. Capote was supposed to get to Kansas City, check into his suite at the Mulebach Hotel, and then hop in a car for the 40-minute ride to the prison. The plan was to spend the better part of the afternoon and then the evening leading up to the hanging with both Hickok and Smith. But when the time came, Capote called Charles McAtee, the director of Kansas Penal Institutions, and the individual officially responsible for coordinating the state's execution process. Capote had interacted with McAtee throughout the five years of Hickok and Smith's incarceration, and the men were quite familiar with each other. When Capote explained that he couldn't bear the thought of spending hours with the two men, not knowing how to handle the situation, McAtee then asked about whether he would be present at the execution itself. Capote said that he would. He just did not want to spend the entire day with the condemned killers. Once they heard this, Smith and Hickok began to feverishly call Capote at his hotel, hoping he might help with last-minute appeals. Joe Fox, the Random House editor who worked on In Cold Blood and the individual who accompanied Capote to Kansas, fielded the calls that were actually relayed by an assistant warden as an intermediary. 
Capote told Fox that he did not want to speak with either Perry or Dick, and he didn't, waiting until 9 p.m., then heading to the prison with Dewey and some other KBI agents. In the meantime, it was left to McAtee to sit in and serve as a substitute for Capote. The men were served their last meal, both requesting the same thing, fried shrimp, french fries, garlic bread, ice cream, and strawberries, and strawberry soda. It was pouring rain, and by the time Capote got to the holding area where Hickok and Smith were waiting, they were already shackled into the leather vests that kept their arms at their sides when they descended through the gallows trap door. The author and the two men said their brief goodbyes, and that it was almost midnight, the time of the scheduled execution. Because it was raining, both men were driven across the prison lot in an automobile, removed from the back seat, and then stood up to listen to Warden Sherman Krauss read the official warrant authorizing their execution. The corner where the gallows stood was actually in a corner of a large warehouse that was poorly lit and had a dirt floor, with literally stacks of lumber piled in another corner. Approximately 20 spectators were present, some KBI agents, Capote, other media, a few politicians from the local county, and the responsible prison personnel. Hickok went first, although no one was really sure how that was decided, perhaps alphabetically. He made a brief statement, quote, I don't have any hard feelings. You're sending me to a better place, unquote. He then thanked the KBI agents for being there and was helped by guards up the 13 steps of the gallows. There, while the 23rd Psalm was intoned by the prison chaplain, a hood was placed over his head, a noose tightened around his neck and the long hood. At 12.19 a.m., he was positioned exactly on the wooden platform, and then the hangman paid $600 for his effort, pulled a lever opening a small trap door, Hickok falling straight down until the rope snapped taut, breaking his neck. A doctor present for this official purpose took 22 minutes to pronounce Hickok dead after his heart stopped beating. Cut down, his body was then placed in an ambulance. Smith was next, driven to the gallows and arriving a little after 1 a.m. In Capote's book, he is supposed to have issued an apology, but his last official words actually were, quote, I think it is a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. I say this especially because there's a great deal I could have offered society. I think capital punishment is legally and morally wrong. Any apology for what I have done would be meaningless at this time. I don't have any animosities toward anyone involved in this matter. I think that is all, unquote. Then Smith ascended the steps to the gallows, underwent the same process as Hickok, dropped through the trap door at 1.07 a.m. and was pronounced dead 12 minutes later. Within days, Capote had his conclusion for In Cold Blood, an account that only lasted a few pages. Initially a project conceived as an article for the New Yorker magazine, Capote also had his 100,000-word nonfiction novel, which could not have been published in a single issue of a magazine. Instead, it was serialized in four separate issues starting on September 25, 1965. The release of the work was a national sensation, all of the magazine editions selling out throughout the U.S., the actual book followed on January 17, 1966. It hit the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list on February 6th and remained there until May 7, 1966. 
The book is the second best-selling true crime book in publishing history after Helter Skelter was translated into 30 languages and remains in print today, 56 years later. It earned Capote an estimated $2,1966 and an explosion in media coverage that established him as not only the most recognizable American literary figure, but a popular culture icon as well. But, as in any spectacular literary endeavor, there was both criticism and skepticism. Capote probably invited a lot of the scrutiny with his mushrooming public persona and omnipresent talk show appearance boasts that his manuscript was the most fact-checked in the history of the New Yorker, meticulously researched with thousands of pages of notes, quote, immaculately factual, unquote, and, quote, every word is true, unquote. It was only a few months before, in June of 1966, author Philip Tompkins published an article in Esquire magazine describing interviews with inhabitants of Holcomb and Garden City and of inaccuracies ranging from the aforementioned actual last words of Perry Smith to the more egregious description of Perry Smith's interaction with the wife of the jailer on the day Smith was convicted and sentenced to death. The writer stated, Quote, During our telephone conversation, Mrs. Meyer repeatedly told me that she never heard Perry cry, that on the day in question she was in her bedroom, not the kitchen, that she did not turn on the radio to drown out the sound of crying, that she did not hold Perry's hand, that she did not hear Perry say, I'm embraced by shame, and finally, that she had never told such things to Capote. Mrs. Meyer told me repeatedly and firmly in her gentle way that these things were not true. Unquote. Alvin Dewey even admitted later that the entire final poignant scene in the book where he runs into a classmate of Nancy Clutter in the graveyard that contains the Clutter graves was a complete invention. As the years passed, others connected to the book addressed the issue of veracity. KBI investigator Harold Nye was probably the most vehement when he declared in an interview with George Plimpton, quote, I was under the impression that the book was going to be factual, and it was not. It was a fiction book, unquote. This occurred after Nye sent some preliminary galleys concerning his investigative trip to Las Vegas, refused to approve them, stating that characters were embellished way beyond anything that Nye experienced. For his intransigence, Nye was cut from the guest list of the 1966 Black and White Ball Gala in New York City. Over the years, many other inaccuracies or fabrications have cropped up, but it didn't affect Capote's stature during his lifetime, and In Cold Blood is still celebrated as one of the finest American nonfiction books ever written. However, the book did mark the pinnacle of the author's career, the fame, money, and celebrity excess greatly increasing both Capote's substance abuse and hubris. The 1967 film reproduction of the book only added to Capote's celebrity runway. While some have attributed the author's downward spiral to the emotional trauma of his involvement with Hickok and Smith, Capote's thinly concealed eagerness for the two men's execution and his alcoholism and drug abuse renders this perspective as probably too charitable. Capote's newfound great wealth allowing a lifestyle of indulgence and artistic inactivity. Eventually, Capote might have realized that this inactivity might have been better than what he eventually produced. After Capote delivered on In Cold Blood with such remarkable results, he was given plenty of rope to work on his rumored next big opus, entitled 
answered prayers. Supposedly a gossipy account concerning the sordid tales of socialite New York through the eyes of one P.B. Jones, an aspiring writer. Perhaps to shock his way back into the literary limelight, in November of 1975, Capote published a chapter of the work in progress in Esquire entitled La Cote Basque, a thinly disguised send-up of the Capote clique known as the Swans, prominent New York females or wives of powerful, high-profile New York power brokers. These women described as they lunched in the restaurant mentioned in the title, at the time New York's most exclusive. Jackie Kennedy, her sister Lee Radziwill, Barbara Babe Paley, wife of CBS chairman William Paley, Gloria Vanderbilt, and Happy Rockefeller, all made appearances depicted as leading either vacuous, adulterous, or scandalous existences. Even worse was a recounting of the story of one Ann Cutler, who accidentally on purpose shoots her husband, himself a wealthy serial adulterer. This was unmistakably Ann Woodward, who, 20 years earlier, shot her husband and was believed by high society to have done this intentionally. So mortified by the rumored release of this fictionalized account, Ann Woodward committed suicide by taking cyanide only days before the excerpt's release. While Capote certainly got the media buzz he was looking for, he was finished in the high society celebrity circles that he previously reveled in. Babe Paley, already dying of the cancer that killed her in 1978, and a woman that Capote considered a dear friend never spoke with him again. Her husband, as well as the rest of New York's jet-set socialite elite, dropped him as well. Capote left to slummet at an increasingly irrelevant Studio 54. Capote's fall from grace was so complete that he exiled himself to California and published only fragments and short pieces. Answered prayers remained unfinished in August of 1984, having not published anything of substance for almost 20 years, and while apparently living at the home of his newest best friend, Joanne Carson, talk show host Johnny's second wife, Capote died of liver cancer. Gore Vidal, who successfully sued Capote over accusations of drunkenness at the White House, and who also famously claimed that Capote's voice was audible only to dogs, called it a good career move. Despite Capote's death, in cold blood has still remained in the public eye. In 2005, Philip Seymour Hoffman won an Oscar for his portrayal of Capote in the film of the same name. However, the film was marred by repeating the fundamentally incorrect premise that Capote attempted to help with Hickok and Smith's appeals, even supposedly paying for them out of his own pocket, and that his ultimate dissolution was the result of an inability to cope with such an emotionally draining process. In 2012, Sarasota, Florida police announced that they were seeking to exhume the bodies of Hickok and Smith to provide DNA in an attempt to match samples in the murders of Christine and Cliff Walker and their young children, which occurred on December 19, 1959, a date in which both Hickok and Smith were definitely in the state of Florida and had a 1956 Chevrolet Bel Air, a model of car that the Walkers were interested in buying. Christine arrived at her home alone in the afternoon and was raped and then shot to death. Cliff was then ambushed and murdered by gunshot, as was his three-year-old daughter and one-year-old son. Although the pair of murderers were definitely seen around this time in the area, and the bodies of Smith and Hickok were exhumed, their DNA was too degraded to allow for a match to existing samples. 
Interestingly, Walter David Hickok, the brother of Dick Hickok, had previously refused to provide a DNA sample that would have greatly aided the investigation. As a non-criminal, he could not be compelled to do so. Today, Hickok and Smith are still considered the leading suspects in this cold case. Another postscript to In Cold Blood occurred in 2012 when Ron Nye attempted to auction off notebooks and personal papers that his father, Harold Nye, kept after the investigation was concluded. Strangely, the state of Kansas aggressively tried to prevent the sale of this material and in fact demanded its return. Fortunately, the younger Nye and his partner, memorabilia dealer Gary McAvoy, were able to obtain pro bono legal representation to combat what they considered to be government overreach. Once McAvoy became publicly involved in this dispute, he also came into possession of prison diaries of Dick Hickok and letters which detailed the killer's attempt to market his own account of the murder in a collaboration with a Wichita Eagle reporter named Mac Nations. This endeavor was foiled when publishers, especially Random House, rejected the Hickok collaboration by merely stating that Truman Capote was already under contract to produce the definitive book on the case. In Hickok's manuscript, he strongly implies that the murder of Herb Clutter was a professional hit and not a robbery, and that he was paid or stood to collect as much as $10,000 to kill Clutter. Two law enforcement officials did later tell investigators that they saw three men in an all-night restaurant in Cimarron, Kansas, at about 3 a.m. on the morning of November 15th. The inference that Hickok and Smith were there to collect from a third man named by Hickok only as Roberts. As Perry Smith walked with a limp and was noticeably short, he would have been easily identifiable. In 1962, Mac Nations was coincidentally arrested for tax evasion for a bribe he supposedly took while working as a public official in the 50s, a rather unusual development. Although acquitted, he was forced to leave his reporting job and moved to Colorado, where he was killed in an auto accident in 1968. The 200-page manuscript that Hickok and Sessions completed but couldn't sell, entitled High Road to Hell, has disappeared but letters from Hickok to Sessions were detailed in the Wall Street Journal, letters that contradict much of the official KBI and Capote accounts, especially as the KBI has always recognized in cold blood as a factual and accurate representation of the crime's investigation. Instead of merely auctioning off the Nye material, Gary McAvoy chose to write a book about his battle, ultimately successful with the state of Kansas, offering new information contradicting the official Capote account and pursuing the theory of the clutter killing as a murder for hire. Unfortunately, he never really provides a convincing motive for such a gruesome crime other than some local politics and the fact that clutter might have been romantically involved with the wife of another Garden City businessman. Still, the ferocity of the state of Kansas's legal response to the Nye auction indicated that at the very least, there was private embarrassment over the original investigation and the Capote account which glorified the wrong man and overlooked the perjury of one of the prosecution's main witnesses. And one nagging and fascinating question raised by McAvoy cannot be answered. If Floyd Wells never actually saw the inside of the new clutter home, how was he able to diagram it for Richard Hickok in prison? And why did he tell Hickok that there was a safe 
Unfortunately, Wells was never able to answer that question, arrested almost immediately in 1961 in Oklahoma for essentially car theft. He eventually drew a much more serious term in the Mississippi State Penitentiary. On April 3, 1970, Wells attempted a breakout with two other inmates by stealing a tractor and hoping to escape from the maximum security compound. Eventually surrounded in a wooded area by prison guards, his two accomplices surrendered, but Wells fought it out and was shot to death. Because his legal name was William Floyd Wells Jr., his death would not have been immediately linked to the notorious Floyd Wells from in cold blood. To the residents of Garden City and Holcomb, Kansas, there is another enduring fundamental mystery concerning the Clutter case. Why was so much attention paid to two killers of four perfectly decent family members instead of the family itself? And why does this story still generate so much fascination, even today? While there is a memorial to the Clutter family in a local Holcomb Park, there is absolutely no acknowledgement or even a public trace of Truman Capote in the Garden City, Holcomb, Kansas area. For many years, a photo of Capote posing in front of the Wheatlands Motel appeared in the lobby of this establishment. Capote frequented this rather modest inn as it was situated next to one of the only Garden City restaurants that had a liquor license. The Wheatlands Motel was a family operation for many years until the motel was sold to a national chain. After this transaction, the photograph was quietly and permanently removed. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Truman Capote et al. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Capote, a Biography by Gerald Clark. Truman Capote, in which friends, enemies, acquaintances, and detractors recall his turbulent career by George Plimpton. In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And Every Word is True by Gary McAvoy. In addition, the journalism published in the Wall Street Journal by Kevin Helliker, especially an article entitled Capote Classic in Cold Blood, Tainted by Long Lost Files, published on February 8, 2013. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>